Welcome to the Recent Speeches podcast presented by BYU Speeches, featuring inspiring new devotionals and forums given each week on BYU campus. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. Thank you for that generous presentation and kind introduction, and not least the film uh, from my beloved Damon Wells Chapel in Pembroke College, named after a generous and gracious gentleman who not only restored the chapel and supported it, but also endowed the chaplaincy and the chaplain. Damon uh, Wells died last week in Houston in Texas, and it's nice to start off by seeing how overlapping we are with those great people of faith. May he rest in peace and rise in glory. It's a great privilege, a real privilege to stand here before you in all your verdant strength of youth and to be able to reflect with you what it means for us to strive to build a beloved community. Last month, Martin Luther King III introduced this series of fora, reflecting upon how we might better become a beloved community. I need to start with a short introductory thanks to all who have made this possible in difficult circumstances. My time at BYU had a rather unexpected start, and I'll come back to that a bit later. But it's appropriate today for me to ask myself, how do I feel? And what's my responsibility in talking to you, my dear friends, in whose debt I will ever be? Well, how do I feel? A little overwhelmed, I guess, but immensely grateful. And what's my responsibility? Well, I think I need to start to have with beginning by avoiding any temptation to say things so that you might love or like me. Of course, we need to be loved, we need to be understood, but actually what a dreadfully self-centered way of viewing things of this time together that would be. And of course, I own up, I want you to like me, because a lot of you can run a lot faster than I can at the moment. But my real obligation is that I express my love for you. In 2 Nephi 1.25, a text that has lodged in my heart since I first read it, it's clear that the Book of Mormon's testimony to the truth of Jesus Christ is not manipulation, nor the desire to take power and authority over others, but to see and celebrate the glory of God in service and love. You will remember that Father Lehi tries his hardest always to reconcile his feuding sons. He wants them to see the truth and to appreciate God's work in each other. He confronts his rebellious sons for accusing Nephi of seeking power and authority over them. He says, I know that he had not sought for power nor authority over you, but he hath sought the glory of God and your own eternal welfare. I go so far as to ask the Lord to stay my lips if I veer into manipulation or self-interest rather than offer words of mission and love. So where do we start? I think, first of all, with the wonder that we are already called into being as a beloved community. We are all beloved now, no exceptions. The Lord has called us together because he simply can't take his eyes off us in his love. So we need to reflect that wonder We need to show that whoever somebody is, whatever their color, creed, background, gender, sexual orientation, you name it, the Lord loves you. 
That is the baseline. We don't have to build that. That is the fact. Sometimes in our past, as religious communities of various hues, we have been too quick to speak, too eager to judge, too slow to listen and communicate the Lord's love. We speak today of a cancel culture, deliberately demonizing and diminishing those with whom we disagree. But some of our different religious communities' approaches to minorities or to powerless people have indeed nurtured this response. So we have to listen and learn and love. Then we will also find that it is necessary that a beloved community has boundaries and norms and expectations. No one should be hurt or damaged on the Lord's holy mountain. There cannot be exploitation. We cannot seek to exploit the vulnerable or collude with oppression or unkindness. We must especially safeguard the most vulnerable, those who need our help the most. The Roman Catholic community in the United States, in Ireland, France, and the UK, along with Anglicans in the UK and worldwide too, has betrayed sacred trusts, much to our shame. So being a beloved community is also necessarily building a beloved community which is safe, being near enough to be trusted but far enough ahead to be worth following, listening, and being accountable. That is also countercultural. You'll remember King Benjamin purged contention from the land according to the book of Mosiah, inspiring us to have a mind not to injure one another, but to live peaceably, pitching our tents towards the holiness of God and his temple, peaceably using our agency. So being a beloved community means daily beginning again at building this beloved community. And that's hard. Every day to begin again, as the rule of St. Benedict has it. Most of us want certainty. We even look to scripture, particularly those of us from Protestant or Catholic traditions, to offer us a guarantee that we're in, they're out. And even within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, some people can veer away from some of the consequences of being a restored church with a living prophet and don't want to face the difficulty of negotiating change. Now that's not new, of course. Think about those two declarations at the end of the Doctrine and Covenants, how they reflect great trauma and the prophetic task of the pastoral care of people facing radical changes concerning plural marriage or race and the priesthood. But change and pastoral support are there. Facing change together is core to this church. I'm sure you've seen some stuff on the internet which is aimed against the leadership of the churches based on longing for a safe ground. There are some very antagonistic American Roman Catholic series of broadcasts which attack Pope Francis and the Catholic bishops. There are also very angry Anglican and Methodist broadcasts because the internet has democratized dissent. But I'm not sure which is most damaging to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Antagonistic websites from without, which can often be seen to be the product of damaged or immature people, or websites which seek to defend a perceived traditional Latter-day Saint series of values, 
and we can find some email, uh, some um, websites attacking BYU or even policies and leaders in the church. It can feel a very popular thing to play to a perceived audience and think that we're doing good. But whatever our religious tradition, I think we have a very serious challenge to face. There may well be freedom of speech in the United States, which, by the way, is very different from how those words would be interpreted in the United Kingdom. There, it's actually quite superficial, but altogether more polite. <laughs> but beware. If we start to become antagonistic and contentious, I was going to say perhaps we have to reflect, but there's no perhaps about it. We must reflect seriously on how it is to, when we start to play to our own prejudices. Because above all, if we become the accuser of our brothers and sisters, even calling members of this university with whom we disagree apostate, here's a simple test question. In all that we do, are we being an advocate for our brothers and sisters and for the truth? Or have we fallen into the role and nature of the accuser? Remember that our Lord is always the advocate. It is our enemy who is ever our accuser. We do live in very contentious times, and so our task to all who come to this beautiful community of BYU, to students and staff and visitors alike, is to say unashamedly, we see you, we love you, and we will travel with you together into God's perfect kingdom. At Chicago airport, I had a flight transfer and two other passengers were sitting there and asked me what on earth I was going to do in Salt Lake City. I tried to explain. And then in beautifully simple language, one woman looked me in the eye and said, well then, you have to listen as hard as you can to learn as much as you can that you may love completely. I think that wonderful woman was not far from the foundations of how we begin to build a beloved community. We see you. We will learn to see ourselves with you. And together, we will face the whole host of difficulties rooted in our history and prejudices and in our own confusion. In January of 2020, at Oxford First Ward, uh, I spoke in a testimony meeting and read and signed in the presence of the congregation BYU's contract about the honor code based on the word of wisdom. The nearest thing to a covenant I could make with this church. But then, of course, COVID came and this visit was postponed. I had to decide whether or not I kept those covenantal promises made in front of God's people. And in fact, because I'd done that, there was no hesitation. In fact, it was a wonderful antidote to the culture of wanting to be exempt. It's not conformity to rules, but it's me saying yes to the possibility of not reaching out my hand for that which isn't right. It's yes to standing in absolute solidarity with the addict, with people who are taken in and who are financially stretched by the abuse of alcohol and tobacco, coffee and even tea. It is possible not to reach out one's hand to take for oneself but rather to stand mindfully in solidarity with those who cannot easily make those decisions. I began to see, as an outsider, of course, that the word of wisdom is a tremendous resource for sanctification. 
countering a conformity with destruction and the cancelling of others. And I'm glad that I had the time because of COVID to practice that at home and to begin to understand it more before I came here. Now, of course, some Christians would describe that sort of covenant and choice as a kind of works righteousness. Jean Calvin remolds the words of Saints Augustine and Saint Paul um, and might insist that we can add nothing to what God in Christ has already done for us. And any attempt to do so is the superfluity of naughtiness. I've found, in fact, that it's been the unleashing of grace. One early Christian writer, St. Clement of Rome, writing to the church in Corinth, uses a peculiar word, which I believe connects with this faithful exercise of agency. The word is often translated sojourning. I think you pronounce it sojourning, but you know what I mean. I hope. The first epistle of Peter speaks of Christian experience as passing the time of our sojourning. In other words, the early Christian community realized that there was a significant difference in the quality of time and space offered in Jesus Christ to that which was on offer in the empire. Rowan Williams, whom you've just heard on the film, noticed that the words around paroikousa become the basis of the English word parish or region. Early Christian understanding of time and space echoes with what other centuries later will claim in words like, this is the place. This is our time. Sojourning doesn't just mean waiting for the apocalypse to come. It means to claim this time by the power of and in the service of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not just kicking our heels as if we're waiting to be entertained, waiting with boredom for the exciting apocalypse to come, but rather finding a way of making every moment a means to invite all people into the deepest truths of their lives, into a beloved community which takes even our inadequate energies and gifts and builds of them a kingdom with Christ. This Italian Roman Catholic theologian and philosopher, Rorio Agamben, in a very small book, The Church and the Kingdom, offers a story that in this setting you may not find very surprising. He says, the initial Christian community, expecting as it did the imminent arrival of the Messiah and thus the end of time, found itself confronted with an inexplicable delay. In response to this delay, there was a reorientation to stabilize the institution and juridical organization of the early church. The consequence of this position is that the Christian community has ceased to sojourn as a foreigner so as to begin to live as a citizen and thus function like any other worldly institution. I love the fact that this comes from a scholarly Catholic background a recognition that the gospel is so often traded for churchianity. And I think of the explosion of delight and joy at the first vision of Joseph Smith, Jr. Even as it unfurls in layers of unexpected opposition, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is always urged to recover that first love, the urgency of mission, which I have found in this community, both here in Utah and especially in the England-London mission in the United Kingdom. It's that anxious engagement to make every moment a gate through which the Messiah can come and bring us home. 
I hope what I'm trying to say is that looking together across perceived boundaries, which are usually quite watertight, can open our understanding, deepen our faith and our humanity. Scholarship need not and must not lead to cynicism. Rather, it's an opportunity to become friends and to discuss things like grown-ups. Let me take you on another historical example from the fourth century, an area I'm supposed to know something about. The fourth and fifth centuries really wrestled hard to try to find a language of greatest scope to describe the nature of the persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, as well as the nature and the work of Jesus Christ. There was a notorious priest in the early church who became a point of contention. His name was Arius, about 250 to 336 AD. And among other things, he was very biblical indeed. He emphasized the singularity of God to the point that only the Father was really God. Jesus was really the first creature, a natural mediator between the created and the eternal. Arius objected very strongly to images of God which depended upon mystery and which asked human arguments to take a back seat. There's a big irony here, of course. The reaction to Arius was, I believe, an attempt to say anything that we can think about God isn't anywhere near as significant as what God has shown himself to be the eternal Father, the only begotten Son, the Holy Spirit. That, I believe, is how creedal language about the Trinity began. At its best, language about the Trinity isn't a definition of God. How can that be? But it was an attempt at authentic description. And yet, as we know, in the spiritual civil wars of the fourth century, our universal human instinct to put everything in a box so that we could control even the idea of God re-emerged. Salvation was construed in what we call the Athanasian Creed, footnote, neither a creed nor by St. Athanasius, but you know, it's not what it says on the lid, but never mind. The Athanasian Creed urges compliance to a series of assertions, which faith, it says, except everyone do keep whole and undefiled, without doubt he shall perish everlastingly. How on earth did that happen? From trying to say, don't try to box God in, to making it this prescription. It prescribed salvation by compliance to this idea. Sure, it tries to sustain a sense of mystery, but it does this by saying something, apparently then denying it, and then reasserting it, leaving the reader dizzy. It implies to have found an absolute formula for God, which is ironically the very opposite of what the creeds were trying to do. My experience with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has meant that for me, even some of the most beautiful Eastern Orthodox prayers now make me stop and ponder. If they address prayer not to the persons of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but to an idea of the Trinity. I am a Nicene Christian, but one who doesn't worship a human idea, however clever or pleasing. I don't think that the notion of the Holy Trinity is a sort of quadratic equation which holds together the three persons in a singular divinity. And I have to say something quite controversial now. I don't know whether you like this bit. I might have to run. <laughs> I do not know of a church that rigorously addresses the persons of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit more than this church, more than the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Ironically, you're more Trinitarian than the Trinitarian churches. 
So to share this in an academic and interreligious context so that we may understand one another and push more further into the beautiful mystery of God, well, that has to be our desire, and that is building a beloved community. You may have heard of other divisions around the creeds, how churches fragmented, arguing whether or not the Spirit proceeded from the Father and the Son, or just the Father alone. And the East and the West now have different Nicene creeds. Shared scholarship beyond simply the East and the West of the old churches, beyond Orthodox, Catholic and Reformed, which includes also the insights of the restored church, will help us all. I profoundly believe that scholarship can help us reach beyond factionalism and beyond brittle apologetic. The basis of this? Friendship, commitment, trust and truth. So can we look upon each other as the Lord looks upon us? He longs for us in love, but he doesn't leave us where we first begin. True friendship asks all sorts of questions, questions we don't yet know the answers to. I trust and love you, and I want to ask a lifetime of questions as I travel alongside you, with a longing heart, bringing others, beautiful people, from my own and other religious communities along with me, so that they can find and share something of the richness, the kindness, the truthfulness that has overwhelmed me in this place and in this church. I was sitting in a beautiful house opposite the Marriott Centre where I now live. Pop in and say hi, but don't come all at once. (laughs) One sunny fall day, I was praying and reading section 136 of Doctrine and Covenants. It made me weep with joy. President Brigham Young at Winter Quarters, Omaha Nation on the west bank of the Missouri River, writes after the martyrdom of Brother Joseph. The word and will of the Lord concerning the camp of Israel in their journeyings to the west. Let all the people of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and those who journey with them be organized into companies. Those six short words and those who journey with them were like a fountain of truth and trust. I sat knowing that this scripture was another testimony of Jesus Christ in this new world. After all that had happened unexpectedly, crowning as it were, the massive kindnesses overwhelming me, traveling alongside this restored church means being a part of a fluid and happy, repentant community, constantly delighted by the wonder of that invitation, not only to know ourselves as loved, I am a child of God, as you sing. That's a dignity that nothing temporal can ever take away. But to continue becoming and building up one another in love, not being afraid to keep on growing. When I first came over to Utah, around four years ago now, there was a sense of excitement at President Russell M. Nelson's insistence that the church relinquished its shorthand self-description as Mormon and was to rely instead upon what the scriptures of this church use. The church, first of all, ecclesia, called out from collusion and convention to grinding monotony into God's own life and being. Then, naming the Lord Jesus Christ, moving away from cultural identity alone, not just funeral potatoes and green jello. (laughs) 
moving to universal and eternal identity, that of belonging to the only name under heaven, conveying health and salvation. Then, that we are in the latter days, not the institutional continuity of chronological time, but kairos, the option of moving everything to enable all souls to enter the kingdom. And finally, saints, with holiness in our hearts and holiness unto the Lord. Initially, I thought, why use all these words when the singular word Mormon might do? But now I see just how sloppy that would be and the wisdom of that revelation to President Nelson. So I have to tell you, my friends, that I think my life's direction has been heading here even if I didn't know it. God's not an autocrat or tyrant, and he invites our collaboration, individual and joint agency, at every turn. There's a real possibility of greater unity between our churches. It'll be a steep path. And between our academies, as we're beginning to explore an organic Pembroke College, Oxford, BYU connection, looking for decades of profound collaboration, not just a series of theological, legal, humanitarian, practical conferences and events as good as they all are, but regular or regular visiting scholars. But this is the time, this is the place, because this is his time. This is his place. Don't get me wrong, I'm not proposing another peaceful meal reformation, but traveling together. The problem with reformation is, is that there are yet more human ideas. The shocking power of the revelation to Joseph Smith Jr. is that here was no great German academic, but an ordinary man who dared to ask God and who had the ears to listen to the answer of the Father and the Son, and the boldness to invite others on that journey, and the courage to face even death for the glory of God and his brothers and sisters' eternal welfare. Marilyn Robinson's novels drip grace. Gilead remains one of the most spiritually vibrant novels, I think, of the 20th century. She's a Christian writer who doesn't avoid struggle, but finds God there. When she was speaking in Sweden, she insisted on a new venture in theology, one that respects our materiality. Another theme which is worthy of scholarly exploration together in terms of exploring the relationship of matter and God in a way that only dialogue across traditional boundaries will bear fruit. She said, one thing theology must do now is to reconsider and reject the kind of thinking that tends to devalue humankind, which is influential tendency in modern culture, that one that, not coincidentally, runs parallel to the decline of religion. This devaluing of the species, in effect, puts everything interesting about us as irrelevant to the question of our true nature. A new theology should be open to the sheer plenitude of things, a mortal encounters. That's a marvel in itself. A new theology must begin from and always bear in mind the fact that there's something irreducibly thrilling about the universe whatever account is made of it. It would be theistic to say that the capacity for abstract thought, for example, was introduced into humankind by some external agent, but that's not my kind of theism, she said. Let's say instead that this capacity must have arisen out of the transformations potential in that first particle and realized over time, consistent with those potentialities. <clears throat> then there is a profound intrinsic relationship among all forms of being. This is the time. This is the place. 
This helps theology and our beautiful universities to build each other up in truth and love. Not saying brittly, this is all I am, don't ask me to change. But saying whoever I am, whoever you are, we are the Lord's. Together, let us grow into the full stature of Christ. Finally, I want to, finally, I want to offer a, an unexpected metaphor today, which certainly wouldn't have been in this address had I not needed three and a half weeks in intensive care at the burn unit of the University of Utah Hospital. The immediate impression upon going in there is a sense of unconditional acceptance, not inappropriate for the first university founded by Brigham Young. There is a sense of entrusting each patient to participate in their own healing, a commitment to professionalism, a solidarity with those who are in pain, and a massive commitment to the progression of healing. You might think that it's just about comfort and affirmation. Building a beloved community means seeing beyond the comfort. I will never forget seeing the sense of community that Professor Giovanni Lewis has built in that place and the extraordinary capacity of nurses and doctors to help patients through the most difficult, stretching, painful times. Especially moving is seeing how much it costs nurses and ward staff to help patients move sore and tight skin. One little boy, let's call him Keith, had been in that unit since the 4th of July, when an adult had thrown a firework at him, causing significant injury. He'd grown to love the staff, even as they were asking him to do things which hurt. Being able to love people who help us to grow, who stand with us in our pain, is a beautiful example of the nature and the cost of building a beloved community. I have to say, I wasn't the bravest patient and I'm still not. Every day I had a phone call from the elder Elder Holland. And I think people thought he was just my imaginary friend when I told them. <laughs> Till he turned up twice with police and security and then a lot of people wanted to see him. I told him that I'd been very grumpy, uh, worried about losing my feet. One night when I was at my lowest, a tiny white-haired blonde five-year-old girl, a patient, let's call her Stella, came up to me as I was standing gloomily outside my room and grasped my little finger with her tiny hand and she turned me round. Now there's a sight to see but she made me walk around the ward with her. She wouldn't let go until I kissed the top of her head, her parents and nursing staff chuckling. But I can tell you that the characteristic hallmarks of God in Christ were there. This was indeed an angelic visitation. I'd been told to turn around, to shuva, metanoiety, repent, and had been led by a little child. Those in a healing community build a beloved community around them, often without completely comprehending what we're doing. That, in a nutshell, is what I believe we're called to do together. After the long histories of difficulty and division and schism between Christian communities, beautiful friendships can flower and bear fruit between Christian communities. If we're taken by the finger and turned round, after the pattern of the University of Utah burn unit. I have to say I'd like to be able to be more upbeat about the recovery of these feet. Without the daily support of Nurse Carrie Brown, for example, I don't know where on earth I'd be. In some ways, healing seems to be going very well, but I'm still not sure how it's going to work out. Because I, like everybody else, want to have the simple, straightforward solution which makes everything all right now. But that's not the pattern of anointing and sealing which I was blessed to receive.
It may well be that I have to go back into hospital again and have to have some more tissue removed, perhaps even a little toe. But before I get too morose, what's a little toe between friends? <laughs> Don't get me wrong, I, I want, I'd like it on my foot, if possible. But having taken the initial steps of faith, we can take steeper ones. On Saturday night, a friend of mine took me to the supermarket, and while I was sitting waiting for him to get a bulb, the sun was setting in the west behind the mountains, but still illuminating the mountain tops of the Wasatch Front, the moon shining with a vibrancy of a circle of lace. And the stark horizontal light showed patterns of relationship and connection in those beautiful western mountains. It was a beautiful golden evening, and I thought of the writings of a great ancient Christian, Gregory of Nyssa. <clears throat> One of his insights was that he saw Christian discipleship not just as something to be achieved, becoming a one-off possession. That's neither scholarship nor discipleship. It is rather the process of learning to walk step by step as the road gets steeper we're more equipped to take more difficult steps. Recognizing that it is an infinite ascent into the very being of the Father in the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. This made me think of the Latter-day Saint emphasis on continuing. Joseph Smith's history of the church echoes Gregory so closely. The nearer man approaches perfection, the clearer are his views and the greater his enjoyments, till he has overcome the evils of his life and lost every desire to sin, and like the ancients, arrives at that point of faith where he is wrapped in the power and glory of his maker and is caught up to dwell with him. But we consider this a station to which no man ever arrived in a moment. However long it takes to build this enduring communion between Oxford, Pembroke and BYU, I commit to journeying with you, even on these feet, however ragged they become, even if I had to walk over hot coals to get where I am now. getting a bit hoarse, but I'm going to go finish. This is an opportunity to say thank you for so much care in traumatic days, in hospital and home, by so many wonderful people. Thank you for allowing me to express this honest commitment to travel with you in a richness of faith which I have not otherwise experienced. I dedicate this forum address in gratitude to God for Elder Geoffrey R. Holland my beloved friend. We love you, Elder Holland, for being committed to building a beloved community where a growth in love and understanding is possible. When I first came to General Conference, I was shocked to witness protesters shouting rude things at you outside General Conference. I thought, I'll walk over in my collar well, I'll just make it clear to them that these are nice people. Don't be cross. <clears throat> the reaction was a baptism of fire into what the US understands as freedom of speech. <laughs> In the UK, it would have been called hate speech, okay? But nonetheless, it was embarrassing what I was called to hear some of what was said, but I felt I could look my hosts in the eye and stand with you as you were ridiculed. My closest friends have seen that my love for the Lord Jesus has grown exponentially because of my friendship with you. And I want to bring that to the beautifully, beautifully diverse families of Christians and peoples of other faiths so that we may travel together, even across steep mountains, which will lead to our being blessed together. <clears throat> I have been taught so much here and I'm profoundly aware of the inadequacy of this lengthy expression, but I thank you authentically and express my love for you. 
and acknowledge that I am in your debt, a debt I can never repay. So thank you, and may God bless us in our journeying together. Uh, Dr. Thiel, hi, I'm Jacob Bellows. Um, I'm studying Ancient Near Eastern Studies here at BYU. And I just had the question of what can I do to um, help foster this connection between Oxford and BYU so that we can have more discussions like these because I really loved and appreciated your comments and they really just really struck my core. Jacob, thank you. Um, and thank you for, for asking that question because I think it has to be, uh, if you like, an affair of the heart as well as the head. That, that friendship and a, de a de determination to learn together. So what do we do? Well, we look out for, hopefully, opportunities of connection. There are lots of things that go on in Oxford which are connected already to BYU. But what I would like to happen at Pembroke is there to be a centre I know what I'd like to call it, but I didn't say it out loud, and the person I would like to call it after uh, would probably say, well, I'm not dead yet. So I can, anyway, um, but there's a sense in which I want there to be a place of meeting, of continued relationship, uh, so that you as a, you could, you, uh, a visiting student, perhaps, might be able to come along and, and be based both in the Faculty of Oriental Studies um, and in whatever point people are on, graduate, undergraduate, or whatever, and looking perhaps for, if you like, guidance and mentorship across other universities. We can respect each other's um, real, real significance. For example, in the centre that we hope to set up, we're going to make it bound by, at least within the walls of that centre, the BYU Honor Code. And that's not about us trying to be BYU in Oxford. It's about us saying, as a partner, we want to respect you. If it was a partner with an Islamic group, we wouldn't expect alcohol to be, to be part and parcel of it. So we want to, to invest ourselves in each other. And we'll find that each other, we're a bit peculiar. Um, for example, the notion of time in Oxford and, and in Utah seems to be very different. It's not a seven-hour difference. It's a seven-and-a-quarter-hour difference. <laughs> but, but lots of thing, things that we can laugh at ourselves and, and learn to understand that people loving us, teasing us, isn't attack. We live in a world where it's such can, cancel culture that we, that we want to either agree or completely disagree with, with somebody. Those of you who've fallen in love will realize that you don't fall in love with somebody because you agree with them. And, and, and you, it's great to actually find nuance and difference. So just commit. It might be a steep road, but it'd be lovely to have you walking that road with us. Thank you. Thank you, Jacob. Thank you. Hi, um, my name is Margaret. I'm a sociology major. And I was wondering how in your life you came to be able to reconcile and accept many doctrines of different churches to help strengthen your testimony of God as its own individual thing, even when they might be conflicting. Thank you, thank you, Margaret. Um, I guess what I want to say is I don't want to water everything down. Uh, in our primary school system, I talked to somebody this morning about this, we have something called plasticine. I think you might call it Play-Doh which starts off beautiful in all these different colors. The trouble is then, when it's been around for two or three weeks, everything goes a very unpleasant brown color. What, what, I, what I don't want to do is to imagine that we can, we can water everything down to a lowest common denominator. The wonderful, the, the vast kaleidoscope of colors and textures and landscapes and people, we can't, we can't diminish that. Um, but so I, I guess that's what I want to say is that I, I cannot and do not believe some of the major doctrines of Islam or Judaism or Buddhism. But I can rejoice and uh, with what the elder Elder Holland said is a sort of um, a sort of holy envy. I can rejoice at the insights and the beauty of other people's faith streams and traditions. Um, I'm honest. Be honest with you. Um, in terms of my connection as a Christian, I do believe that um, the 
Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is, has a, has a different quality. I don't just look at from the outside. I know I'm not a member, don't worry, I'm not claiming uh, benefits. <laughs> um, but, uh, but it is rather different. Uh, but I love to see in, say, Methodism or Roman Catholicism or Orthodoxy vastly different ways of, of really enjoying the significance of those feasts, festivals, or ideas. So to, to relish the difference and the colour, not to make it all one. Thank Does you. that sort of answer your question? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Hello, Dr. Thiel. My name is Luke Hansen, and I'm a chemical engineering major. In your speech, you talked about the importance of not offending other people and not causing them to feel like they haven't been heard. But we do see times in the scriptures where actually usually prophets seem to be very offensive to some people around them. So I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that balance between being polite and also speaking truth. Thanks, Luke. Good question. Um, I suppose it's the difference between what some people think is the good, the good goodness of tolerance and the difference between that and freedom. You have a great history, the end of the 18th century, rejected tolerance because tolerance implies someone who tolerates and has the authority and power to tolerate this or that person or this or that faith tradition. I don't buy into that. Um, I think, therefore, there was a, a standing up for truth, and that was pretty confrontational. Lots of tea wasted. Uh, um, and, and red coats. I can't wear my red coat in the, in the United States. But seriously, there's a, there's a sense in which you, you had to stand up for the difference between tolerance and freedom. And I guess one of the things that we find with the prophets is that they, they have been given a burning vision but it's never a vision of hate. Okay, we know that people will, will say, I hate your feasts. The Lord says, I hate your feasts and all of that, some of the Old Testament prophets. But they're always actually to draw people back to love. Uh, and I think, I think we do have an obligation not to inflame other people. If we know that we're saying something and we're just gonna press people's buttons and send them on a spin, that's not an ethical thing to do. So there's a way in which we need to find a way of speaking truth authentically and lovingly. And for people to hear that truth, even if it's painful or causes us question, to, to come back and say, well, is this question helping me to grow? Like the little children on the burn ward, who know that even though it's horrible to try to stretch burnt skin and skin graft, that it's really imperative and it can only happen from trusting the nurses and doctors and loving them even if they're telling us to do things which you don't like thank you Luke for that question is that okay yeah hello my name is Katie White I'm a marriage and family major here at BYU um, I was just so impressed by how well-versed you seem to be in the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants. And I was just wondering how you're able to find that peace through the Book of Mormon and the living words of the prophets and, and why you choose to continue in, in, your, in your current faith as a return missionary of the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints. If you were my investigator, I would be confused to why you hadn't continued. And so I just would like to know how you find that and thank you for that question i am a very confused and confusing person <laughs> but um perhaps if i give you why why the book of mormon well because it was given to me on a visit by uh elder holland and uh, i felt a gift requires the respect of, of engagement and i do believe it's a, a new te another testament of jesus christ um, but as happened uh, three or four weeks ago at <clears throat> general conference uh, somebody said she was president of something that come unto Christ and don't come alone so if this were just about me seeking assurance or whatever I mean I, I'm already assured that God is good and God has a purpose for us which is bigger than our own self-interest 
And I really believe that it's, it, I'm in a position which can help other people make transitional and journey so that we can learn together the biggest, the biggest picture of truth. So I'm not saying, oh, well, this is a, this is a big trump card to the individual conversion. Because I would say that engagement with the Book of Mormon and the, and the Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price, these are, these have honed and challenged and changed me. But they also mean that they change what I can do and what I must do in the position where I am. So somebody said to me uh, in a particularly English style, oh, chaplain, don't convert, will you, when you go over there? To which I said, convert whom? And I don't think they got that. But the fact is, unless we convert each day, unless we start again each day, then we're not really continuing that progression, that path. Um, and I think, in a sense, we're all being converted by the goodness of God into a big, his biggest picture. So that's why I would be a disappointment to you as a Mormon missionary but hopefully as a friend looking for the beauty of God in his people, I hope not quite so much of a disappointment. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, Dr. Till. I'm Jed, and I'm a business major here at BYU. Um, I was just wondering, because your relationship is so strong with the church and it's done so much good already, how, what was your first interaction with the church and how has it grown into what it is today? First real, re, real uh, uh, um, reaction, uh, engagement with the church was the younger elder Holland. God, younger, younger, the younger elder Holland. Uh, and and uh, Matthew Holland came to Pembroke College when he was uh, president of uh, UVU for a short sabbatical. And we got talking to one another, and he said, I'd, I'd really like you to meet my dad. Uh, a bit of misunderstanding on my point initially. I thought, I thought perhaps his dad isn't too happy about him being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I was wrong. <laughs> he's delighted that he's a member of that church. And then I met Elder Holland and Sister Patricia Holland, uh, first of all in London, then they came to Oxford. And so the path to this connection, friendship, Friendship is the hallmark of love and, and, and beautifully refracted in faith, a faith which keeps on growing and changing. So that's it. It's friendship basis. And that's what I want to share um, with my own communities of faith and of the academies so that they can see how beautiful it is to be friends with this university and this faith community. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you Jed. Hello, Ruth Eldridge. I'm an organist. Um, I studied very briefly with Richard Dawkins when he was alive, and he was a great critic of Christianity because of its institutional history. And I've often wondered, what can theology, or how might theology respond better to the history of Christianity, which is checkered at best? Ruth, nice to see you. Were you going to come and play the organ at Pembroke College? You see, I remembered. I didn't remember. I didn't know you. You were connected with uh, with with him, though, with Dawkins, um, Richard Dawkins. But uh, how do we face up to that? Well, we've got we've got to fess up. You know, there ha there have been times. You know, if somebody said to me, "Oh, he's got such a chip on his shoulder about religion. Wonder what happened to him." And that's none of our business. But what is our business is to admit, yeah, to be part of the family of Christ does not mean to be perfect, but it does mean to be on the path to perfection. And we have got things incredibly wrong. I'll confess to you all in the presence of, a, of, of one of the 70. I found one of my prayer books when I first started out at the age of 23. And I did pray for this community then, but together with other religious movements, you were other in, in, in my conceptuality and even in my prayer. So what have we got to do? We've got to stop otherizing people. And our prayers are not about listing to God these people who we disagree, but we're going to pray for them because we're trying to be nice and say to 
it's not that sort of request. It's about saying to the Lord, number me with whom you will. Not just the people I love, the people I agree, but people whose faith is different from mine and even people who don't like me. Number me with your people and we'll grow in that process. So it's a, it's a profound transformation. It means owning up to stuff, but it means not, being, not having our buttons pressed by people who think that uh, the selfish gene is the way to see the world. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, Dr. Thiel. Um, I'm Jake Polson, and I'm a finance major here at BYU. And I actually served as a missionary in the Birmingham mission. Um, and while I was there and since coming home, it's been interesting to see how the world is increasingly godless and confrontational. So my question is, how do we spread that message of the beloved community to all of God's children, whether they believe in him or not? I think with the resilience, nice to see you. And uh, I'm glad you were at Birmingham. I grew up there. And it does need God's help. <laughs> I know that. Um, I think it's about not giving up. We're in this for the real long haul. The whole way in which this community understands salvation is not an in-out click. I'm in, I can do anything I like now because God loves me and he might hate you, I don't care. It's not about that. It's about actually we're in this together for the long haul. The process of sanctification and exaltation is not something that's easily accomplished. So we keep on keeping on. Just as we keep on keeping on with our neighbours when they, I don't know, throw their rubbish over our fence or whatever it is that really gets us, we have to be the bigger person. And the one who shows us how to be the bigger person is, of course, the Lord Jesus, who empties himself of everything apart from love. So don't stop being a missionary. Don't stop making every moment count. Every moment being a... a a gate, an open gateway, so that the Lord can enter his Jerusalem. Don't stop making every, everything you do as a finance major and in your business life ahead, everything is a missionary opportunity because the world is worth it. God loves it. Um, and God bless you for going to Birmingham on a mission and coming back in one piece. That's great. Thank, Thank you. you. God bless. Hi, my name's Luke. Um, I am studying communications with a double minor in psychology and family science. And I am a, I'm a very agreeable person as a personality trait. I really don't like it when people are offended, especially if it's something that I said. Um, and I'm also very liberal by temperament, by my personality traits. And so I, I actually left organized religion. I left this church. I fought against it. Um, didn't agree with leaders or documents. And I, I came back. And now I'm very sensitive to um, love. And I don't think love is the problem. I, I think it's that different personalities have different definitions of love. And so I just want to get to know your definition of love as well as um, in your speech, you said that um, like websites that are dedicated to like defending certain principles may do more damage than good. And so within our covenants, it is in our covenant to defend um, the kingdom. So how would you do that as well as your definition of love? Because I read in Dorothy Sayers' book, A Creator Chaos, that the reason why Christianity may be losing the battle in the world to secularization is because we don't believe in dogma. Um, so how would you answer that? Your definition of love and how would you maybe reprove or correct someone as it says in Second Timothy 3? Thank you, Luke. Good questions, hard questions. And I, I, I completely agree that so much of what uh, we talk is not theology, but our psychology and even biology, okay? I, I agree with that. So what is love? Well, I guess we know it when we see it. And my presumptions about love can be very confusing. You know, oh, that's not a very loving thing to do. Well, it might be. So what I was trying to say about, about the you trying to help people to do things which hurt, but remaining in communion with them. I think what I do, what you can see, 
is that if, in a sense, um, things are supposedly telling the truth in love, when you hear an evangelical Christian say that, batten down the hatches, because what they're going to do is lay into you. But in fact, love, as 1 Corinthians 13, read that. I think that's Paul at his best, that that it isn't self-assertion. And it even gives me and you the courage to lay aside our psychological uh, and personality traits and move to something bigger. And if, if Christianity is on the decline, on one level I want to say it's not Christianity that, 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 that in a sense I want to defend. I want to make space for Jesus Christ, the Lord of love, to come to his own and make them his own as only he can. I think that's the difference, but that's what a mission, I think, is really about. And of course, I don't want to see Christianity decline or any of the world religions decline, but, but I think our mission is to make space for the Lord who is love himself to come and teach us what love is. Because lots of our presuppositions, as rightly you say, are really based on what we imagine and project. So really hard questions which I've not answered, but thank you for asking them, Luke. Thank you. You've been listening to the Recent Speeches podcast presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts, including classic speeches taken from our vast audio library, as well as other BYU Speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith. Come follow me, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.